Hey all, my name's Victoria and you're listening to NYCT. NYCT is a podcast and community where everyone has a seat at the table. Whether you're moving to New York City, you live in New York City, or maybe you've only seen the city in the movies, your ticket to this tea party is just being you. If you are a returning listener, thank you guys so, so much for being here. Hey, mom and dad. Hey, friends and fam. If you are new, though, my name is Victoria. I'm a 28-year-old New York City transplant originally from North Carolina who moved to the city six years ago with zero money, not much of a plan, and very few connections. I'm a model represented by Ford Models, but most importantly, I am a model on a mission to create the podcast I've always needed. NYCT is my love letter to my 20s in New York City and to the people who give New York City its pulse. Pinkies up. Let's party. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Today, I'm here with Quinn Leslie, aka Dr. Quinn Leslie, who is my friend and Cheer New York teammate, as well as a breast cancer survivor. So I thought the last week of October was the perfect time to have you on to celebrate you as a person, as well as talk about breast cancer awareness, women's health, and your career. I'm so grateful and excited to have you and just want to say thank you so much for being a great friend and a light to be around as well as thank you for all you do to take care of others both in your career and your personal life. I would love if you could just introduce yourself and share more about where you're from, um, who you are, and how you got to where you are today in your personal life and your career, just a little backstory. Absolutely. So my name is Quinn. Um, I'm from northern New Jersey originally, but I've been living in New York City for the last 18 years or so. Um, I am an emergency medicine and doctor here in the city. Um, and in my spare time, I am a member of Cheer New York along with Victoria, which is how we met. Um, Yeah, and one of the big things that sort of defines who I am or has defined who I am in the last six or seven years is that I am a breast cancer survivor. Um, It's definitely a turn in my life that I did not see coming, um, but it's definitely made me stronger. And so that's one of the reasons we're here to talk today. Yes, I'm so happy just to celebrate you as a person. You are the first day I met you, you were so inclusive and kind and I love that if I ever had to go to the ER and hope that you'd be the one taking care of me. Um, I hope so. Because be you just like, you love people and you care about people, obviously in your professional life, but also in your personal life. Um, and you're just a great person. So I'm glad well, again you. that you're here. Thank you. So I guess just what made you want to be a doctor? Was there a moment you knew that like this was your why, this was your mission? Um, that you wanted to help and serve other people? So initially, I knew I wanted to go into healthcare when I was a teenager. So I grew up as a gymnast. And once I was 14, I started working at the gym, teaching classes for you know the elementary age children and then coaching one of the pre-teams. And my coaches taught me how to like tape ankles and tape wrists and you know when someone would fall, how to encourage them to get back up and you know make sure physically they were okay and so that was my first sort of intro to I guess you can call it like sports medicine light and I really liked that and that responsibility and that ability to be able to take care of people in that way um, 
And then in school, I always really liked science. Like I loved dissecting things. That was super fun. I loved the anatomy of it. And so everything kind of fit. Uh, my dad was also a really big encourager of medicine. Um, my grandmother was like a licensed nurse practitioner, like back in the day, a nursing, like a nursing assistant. Uh, but we didn't have any other uh, people in medicine in my family. And I think my dad always wanted to be a doctor, but he didn't really do so well with blood. Um, and so he encouraged me when I was little, you know, he always told me, and I don't really remember that he bought me like a Fisher Price sport, um, like doctor's bag with a stethoscope and whatever else. Um, so when I got to college, I did pre-med and it was really, really tough for me, like the physics and the organic chemistry. And I went, my love of science kind of went to a hate of science. Um, so I did the pre-med classes, but I ended up majoring in this um, field called the history of medicine, which was kind of looking at history, sociology, um, the psychology of medicine and all of these interdisciplinary things, um, which really encouraged me to become a physician and to work in a field like emergency medicine, where it's not just about the body and the ailment, but it's really a whole mind, spirit, emotional, mental, social, cultural thing with emergency medicine, because you're not just dealing with, you know, someone's broken foot, you're dealing with, you know, housing insecurity and illiteracy and homelessness and food insecurity and all kinds of things that go into like somebody's health. Um, so that's pretty much why I went into medicine. Um, and I really just, you know, enjoy serving people in whatever way that I can. Sometimes and some days it feels great and I feel like I do a lot. And some days I feel like I haven't accomplished anything, but I know overall I'm doing the best that I can, so. Yes. I know it's a lot of work and I think at times it's probably a thankless job. Like, I don't know if that many people actually say like, thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for helping me that gratitude component I feel like is missed it is it is and it's funny because I think for many of my colleagues in emergency medicine the first time we got gratitude in spades was at the very beginning of COVID when people would come out for like the 7 p.m. applause for healthcare workers um, you know I love my colleagues in all fields but I you know tend to notice that the cardiologists and the neurosurgeons and the orthopedic surgeons tend to get a lot of the praise because they do fix the definitive problem and in the emergency room we're really about like stabilization and resuscitation and usually a patient starts in the ER and then if they're admitted to the hospital they may see many other doctors or if they go home they may have to see other doctors on an outpatient so we're the starting point but a lot of times we're not giving patients a diagnosis and so we're not necessarily fixing something. We're telling them, hey, you're okay to go home. You're not going to die. You're not going to lose a limb. Like you are safe to go home. You need to follow up. And because we can't give people an answer, sometimes people feel like we haven't really done much for them. It's also, the ER is also a chaotic place. Like there's people all over the place. You're stepping over people. People are yelling. It's, you know, it's not the nice posh private office that you walk into where you feel like you're loved and warmth and, you know, all cuddly. So it can be a thankless job. Um, but, you know, I think our patients do appreciate what we do for them, even if they can't verbalize it, because a lot of times people come in scared and angry and at least they leave feeling reassured. Maybe they don't have the answer, but they feel better than when they left. So that's what that's what keeps me going or the hope that they feel that way at least i guess like what does your day-to-day -day look like i do mostly clinical but i also do some admin so the clinical side which is what you'd expect our shifts are all over the place so 
I might be working a day shift, which starts at 7 a.m., or if I work a mid-shift that starts at like 3 or 4 p.m., or an overnight, which would start at 11 p.m. and then go to 8 a.m. the next morning. So I work in an academic hospital, which means we have uh, residents, so physicians who have finished med school, but they're doing their training in emergency medicine. So in addition to taking care of patients directly, I'm also supervising them and supervising all all of their care for their patients. Um, So I would come in, I get sign out from the doctor who's on the ship before me. So basically we go through the entire list of patients. They tell me what a brief summary of what the patients came in with, what they're waiting for, what the plan's gonna be, assuming things go a certain way. Um, and then I start seeing patients. Um, if I'm working with a resident, usually I'll have maybe a quarter of the patients that are mine primarily and the rest of them, the resident seeing, and I have to go see that patient after the resident tells me about them to make sure we're all on the same page. And so that goes on for a good 10 hours. Um, and those are patients who come in, either they walk in or they come in by an ambulance. Uh, but then we also get resuscitations, which are patients who are either really sick or have traumatic injuries. And then when those come in, they kind of halt everything and everybody goes to that patient's bedside. So that would be anything from like your gunshot wound to your heart attack, to your stroke, to your car accident, um, to deal with that. And then you're coming back and having to have to multitask in all these different planes, you know, you're getting, getting patients off to radiology, getting labs, getting all this data back, talking to patients. So it's a lot. It's really like, it's kind of a madhouse and really trying to make sense of everything that's going on and just trying to keep things in order. <laughs> it's nice to say. It's 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 fun. We laugh a lot. We you have to have a sense of humor because things get bananas. Um, but it's it's a lot of work. You're tired at the end of a shift. You probably feel you're playing so many different characters in one day. People are coming through that door and it's like a game time. Like, okay, let's go. Let's figure this out. It's true. And you have to like gain people's trust very quickly and get them to tell you their story and their like sometimes their deepest darkest secrets, you know, in the middle of a hallway and it's it can be awkward, but it's a it's a fun challenge. It's it's really like putting a puzzle together, so. Yeah. That's so awesome. How do you set boundaries and find balance in your career and personal life? Like between those long shifts and what you experience and see in the ER plus cheer, because we're on Cheer New York together, like she mentioned earlier, and then also just maintaining your own mental, emotional, physical health. It's honestly really hard. And I feel like some people I work with do a great job of it. I think I do a mediocre job. Um, I mean, it helps that we do work in shifts and you know that at a certain time that shift is over and somebody else is coming in for you and they're taking the responsibility. So you're not carrying it with you, but I'm a kind of person who I tend to run things back over my head or if there was a decision I made and I was like, oh, like maybe I should have gotten that test or maybe like, you know, I will agonize over it. So like one of the small things I started doing is like the next day, if I send a patient home and I'm kind of like, I don't know how they're doing, I'm just gonna like call them and just be like, hey, you know, I was a doctor who saw you yesterday. Like, how are you doing? I think the patients love it, but for me also it gives me a little bit of peace of mind because it can be scary when you're like, I don't, I don't know if I did the right thing for that person. Um, but I think in, t- in terms of like maintaining my like mental and emotional health, um, I really try to decompress on my commute home. And I will you know, say I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to mentally wrap up whatever happened. And when I walk in the door at home, I'm going to let it go and focus on 
you know, myself. I'm going to read. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to play with my dog. Um, just finding something else to immerse myself with really helps kind of let go of the day. And there's some days where I just don't let go and I'm in that mode until the next shift. Um, but I think as I've been in the profession longer, it gets a little bit easier, but it's never, it's never an easy thing to do. And yeah, I'm, I'm a, I harp on things. So I always hold a little bit. I think that that's good advice too. If there are other junior doctors even listening to this, like to know that it's not always easy, that like there are going to be days you are going to harp on things, like you are going to second guess yourself. But I love that you were saying, you know, you call a patient if you're unsure because that just makes them trust you more. That that part of community too, where like you see them and you hear them and you, you know, helped helped them or take took care of them and it just makes them feel more seen as well and that you remember and that you care and I think that that is like so awesome so just in terms of like balance I think that we sometimes forget that health is wealth oh yes (laughs) and I know I do it we put off appointments and we don't prioritize what really matters which is ourselves and our you know well-being we don't drink enough water we're dehydrated yada 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 we over drink mm-hmm. <laughs> all those things um so from your perspective as a doctor but also as a breast cancer survivor do you have advice or thoughts on what you feel really matters in terms of women's health care and just staying healthy being proactive flagging things when you feel off etc yeah i think the biggest thing is really learning to be your own advocate in terms of your health and you know i think people can say like you have to go to the primary doctor once a year you have to go to the gynecologist once a year you have to go to the dentist twice a year and i don't disagree with those recommendations at all but i think you need to learn what your body needs and try to respond to it in that way so that way you actually take responsibility for those things so like one of the things that I've been working on is trying to drink more water. Um, I'm a horrible water drinker. I don't like it. I have to flavor it with something, but I will go and hold a whole ER shift, 10 hours. I will not drink any water and I will not pee. And I come home and my pee is like highlighter yellow. It's terrible. And you know, my mouth is dry and, and you know, I have to start thinking about like, okay, what is this actually doing to my body? I feel tired. I feel groggy. My skin looks horrible. Like, you know, there are things that I need to do and to take, take accountability for, for myself. And I need to be my own advocate because nobody is going to tell me at 38 years old, like, here's some water, drink the water, you know? Um, but again, it's sort of being your own advocate and then knowing also like, if you're doing the things that are within your wheelhouse and the things that you normally do and you're still not feeling right, then it's time to take some further steps instead of just letting it go and just letting yourself feel bad because granted, maybe like nine times out of 10, it's nothing, but like one time out of 10, it might be something. Yeah. And I guess to like segue into like being diagnosed with breast cancer, like whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Will you walk us kind of through that? Were you feeling off? Like how old were you? Were you a doctor? I was, yeah. So I was, let's see, I was 32. Um, So it was the summer, I don't know what year that was because I can't do math in my head right now, but a couple summers ago. um, And I first noticed a lump actually in my right underarm. And I was actually on a day off from work. I had gone to Long Island City and was sitting in the little park along the East River and just reading. And I went to like scratch my arm and I was like, huh, this kind of feels like a like a pebble under my skin. Like, what is that? That's weird. Never felt that before. Um, And this 
you know, thought like, this is weird, but didn't think too much of it. And then over the next couple of weeks noticed it started to grow a little bit. So I didn't have a primary care doctor at that time talking about taking care of yourself. So I just went on ZocDoc and I found somebody who had an appointment scheduled or an opening um, within like a week. I went in and saw the, I think it was the nurse practitioner and she, she was a little less than impressed. She was kind of like, eh, I mean, maybe it's a lipoma, which is like a little fatty ball, which isn't anything, or, you know, maybe it's a lymph node, um, you know, go back home, come back in six weeks. Like if it's still there, then, you know, we'll write you a prescription to go see a surgeon to have it removed. And I was kind of like, I mean, it seemed a little bit more than that, but I was also like, I'm 20 or 28. Wow, 32, how old am I? I was 32, you know, breast cancer was like not on my mind. Like I had a slight family history, but in grandmothers who are much older um, and otherwise I felt fine. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll take her advice. I'll kind of watch it and see what happens. Um, and then throughout the rest of the summer, it, the lump sort of got bigger, got more, almost felt like a ball of like hard sand. Um, and like, you could start to see it like protruding like out from under my skin, like if I had a bathing suit on. Um, so I went back and I was like, this, something's weird. And they were like, okay, here's a prescription to like a general surgeon, they can like cut it out. And I was like, I don't think that sounds right. It, she was like, it can't be breast cancer. Like your breast tissue doesn't go up that far. And this was one of those things where I'm like, I'm happy I'm a doctor. and. I don't believe I had told them that I was. And in my head, I was like, your breast tissue definitely goes that far. Um, so I took the prescription, but I then went uh, across the street to the physician offices for my hospital. And I went into the breast clinic and I just spoke with the receptionist. And I was like, hi, you know, I don't have an appointment. I know the breast surgeon is on vacation. I think it was August at this point, uh, but I think I really need to get an ultrasound. Um, you know, is there any way you can help facilitate this or can we leave a message for her? And the receptionist like really just took pity on me and I don't think she was supposed to do this, but she booked me for an ultrasound. Um, and so I ended up getting an ultrasound a couple days later and I was in the radiology area and they did the ultrasound and then the tech was like, mm, we're gonna do a mammogram. And I sat for a long time after that and then the radiologist came out and was like, this is a very weird looking spot that we're seeing. Um, can you come back tomorrow to do an MRI? Did the MRI, which is what kind of diagnosed it, and then went ahead and had a biopsy and went from there. Um, you know, I decided to have my like initial treatment not at the hospital where I worked because that was a little much. I was like, I don't know if I need people I know knowing all of this before I'm ready to tell them. Um, but that was the, that was sort of the initial diagnosis. And it was really interesting because I, think back on it and wonder like, one, if, if I had not had some of the medical knowledge I did, would I have gone a totally different route, like seeing a general surgeon or not seeing anybody at all because, you know, the NP said your breast tissue doesn't go up that far? Or, you know, would I have just continued to wait and would I have caught this at a later stage when it was more serious? Um, and I think, you know, my medical knowledge in that sense in that case it did help a little bit and I knew like okay I need to leave this route this office and go on my own and figure out the next steps like I know I need an ultrasound I know the next test I need so that was helpful but it also maybe was a little bit mentally hurtful at a certain point because after the radiologist said you know this mass looks kind of strange you need this MRI like while I was waiting for the MRI results and then later waiting for the biopsy results 
I unfortunately had access to all these medical journals and all of this online data and could like sit there and as people go down a Google rabbit hole, I was like doing that in medicalese and I actually found out my biopsy results before the doctor called me um, because, <laughs> because it was in like a patient portal. So like, fine, I could see it, but I actually knew what it meant, which you know a lot of people might not be able to interpret that without a physician. So even before someone called me with a diagnosis, I knew what I had. And that was probably not the best um, to get that information alone. I think I was actually at work and I decided to open that email. I'm like, that was dumb, but so good and bad. <laughs> Let's just say. A thousand percent. Um, and how long have you been? In, what's the term? In remission? Is that when you? Yeah. So basically, I've been. So remission is basically between the time that you finish your active treatment and there's no evidence of disease until five years out. So I'm past that five years. That five years was um, last. October. Um, so now basically they call it like no evidence of disease. Um, so basically you could say like I'm a survivor, basically kind of back at baseline in that sense, except that again, my risk for cancer coming back is still higher. Like I still have to get screenings all the time. Um, but basically at this point, you know, I would say quote unquote, like you're, you're cured, I guess it would be the, that would be the, the term people talk about. We're celebrating that with our yes. La, La Colombe coffee. Cheers. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And had you had a mammogram before you were 32? I did not. And I wouldn't have unless, you know, unless I had been high risk, you know, based on like family or, you know, something's there, but usually, um, you know, the, you know, honestly, the recommendations have been changing so much and I'm not a breast surgeon or an oncologist, so forgive me if I misquote them, but you know, it used to be you could start getting mammograms at 50. Most women now start getting them at 40. Um, if you're high risk, they might start you earlier, but no, I never had one. And I know people always are very scared of mammograms. I, I remember my mom telling me how much she hated them and how much they hurt. Honestly, they're not that bad. I mean, there are things that are worse. Like it squishes your boob for like a second. <laughs> It's not comfortable, but it's there are worse things. <laughs> yeah. It's like good to have that again, like help as well. Then it's like some of those things we want to avoid. Sometimes they have answers exactly. that you need to know right in that moment in order to heal or to reroute or navigate certain situations. Yeah. So I guess in terms of like just navigating that breast cancer journey, battling breast cancer, like how or I guess how did you stay optimistic and I think I well we were talking about this a little bit earlier but I think that you know oftentimes society like does not know how to handle illness or like they don't know how to support someone who's battling breast cancer or who's battling an illness and so I guess like how did you stay optimistic in times where it was really challenging and then what advice do you have for those who are maybe supporting someone battling breast cancer or an illness when they say like how can I help you or you know they they want to know how to support you like what do you think is something you would want to share around that yeah I think in terms of staying optimistic you know I was very fortunate my family was great they were you know we're not the closest we are 
we've never been like super buddy buddy, but we're always there for each other. And you know, they dropped everything. My mom basically lived with me for a month after my mastectomy. Like you know, she had to help me like change my drains and shower and wash my hair because I couldn't lift my arm up. And um, I think just having somebody in your life, whether that's family or a partner or a friend, um, who you can really just count on and has who will literally see you at your at your worst um but it's still there for you makes all the difference um my work colleagues were amazing you know they just checked in my friends same thing um and i guess for me i i just i believe that i was going to get through this i never thought it was going to be super easy i always thought that there were going to be some challenges but i think just having the mindset that you know, this is going to be hard. You know, maybe you've never seen anybody of your age or anybody like that go through it, but you can, and then you're gonna find that community of people who have. And then in terms of like what people can do to support, I mean, I was fortunate. There were a couple of friends who I probably lost in this journey. Um, when I was diagnosed, I really wasn't sure how to tell people. And I knew that people were gonna ask, you know, if they were at work, I was gonna be out of work for, you know, a couple of months, you know, if they were friends from, you know, from cheerleading, you know, I was, be able to, I was gonna be able to cheerlead and was gonna like come to practice and sit and watch and they're gonna be like, are you injured? Like, what's going on? Um, and so I decided to write an email to my, what I thought were my closest friends, just letting them know like, hey, this is my diagnosis. This is what's going on right now. You know, I don't have all the information, but you're important to me. So I wanted to let you know. And most people, their responses were perfect and honestly everybody feels differently about this but i kind of think that whatever your initial response to hearing someone's news like that is probably the response that they're expecting you to hear and it's okay so it's like oh my goodness i am so sorry like what that's horrible can i give you a hug what can i do for you literally for me that was fine and i didn't hold my friends or my family to any expectation that they would have the perfect answer because there is no perfect answer for that um you know i think the people who i kind of lost to the wayside were the people who one either pushed their prior experience with it on top on me. So I had a friend who, you know, would just talk about her grandmother who had breast cancer and, you know, how, oh my God, you know, so terrible. She was so sick and she lost her hair and then, and then she died. And I was like, that's not helpful. Um, or I had another friend who was, you know, trying to be helpful, but giving a lot of advice. Um, and was, at that point it was kind of like, you know, maybe I might want to try some of these things, but like, I don't know yet. Um, but it was always like, oh, you should, you should do this or you should do this or, oh, it's because you ate that or it's because you're, you're a doctor and you're around radi radiation all the time. Like, that's why you got it. And so those kind of things I find are not helpful. And I think keeping the focus on the person, you know, whatever it is that they're going through, it could be an illness. It could just be a hard time in their life is really um, important. And I think if you do that, you're going to be, you're gonna be fine, but there's no perfect answer. And honestly, like even as a doctor and in my job where I have to deliver bad news all the time, I still don't know what to say half the time and I'm still fumbling through it. And you just kind of do the best you can, but just keeping the focus on the other person and not turning it around and making it about you. If you know, you say something or you make a mistake, you know, just apologize. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay, we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all say things that we shouldn't in you know, a specific moment and it's part of life. But I think if you can recognize that and just apologize and move forward, I think that's, and that's great. I think people really appreciate that also. Yeah.
That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm excited for, like, listeners to hear. Because, you know, again, you never know who could be battling breast cancer, whose loved one is battling breast cancer. And I hope, you know, this gives people comfort. And I do believe our stories, I say this all the time, are medicine. And so, like, you sharing this is just, and you sharing your light is just lighting up everyone else, which thank Thanks, you Victoria. so much. <laughs> I guess as a New York City community, how can we support others I guess and take care of others in general oh that's a good one I mean so this is the one thing I both love and hate about New York and I think we could do better like I love in New York that there's everybody's like part of the cast of characters right we have so many people who are so different you can walk down the street and be totally anonymous you know you could literally be sitting next to a blue smurf and it doesn't phase you right but I think in that also we have blinders on sometimes to what's going on around us Um, and sometimes maybe we miss little cues because we are so in our own world and not paying attention or purposefully avoiding you know community or purposely avoiding interaction with other people Um, and I think there are times when sometimes we need to step out of that like hard New York like I'm not paying attention to anybody vibe and just look around because somebody you know, two seats down from me on the train may need some help. You know, there's been times where I know I've been on the train and I've been a little teary for some reason, or I've seen somebody crying. And sometimes I'm like, I wonder, I'm like, should I not, should I say something? Or like, do they need some help? Or should I smile or just, you know, say like a thumbs up? Like, are you okay? And maybe something like that is not the worst thing. Um, So I think that could be something that's useful. We live in a really weird, really weird world right now and you know people are going through a lot like we said and you never know when somebody needs a little help and so maybe bring a little uh let's we call it it's a stereotype a little like midwest charm a little charm a little southern hospitality to new york and you know just opening our eyes and seeing what's going on around you and just being like hey maybe that person needs a little bit of help i guess in that same vein we do see so much on the subway and in the street so many people are suffering and i know you have patients in and out of the hospital constantly and i'm assuming some of them are unhoused and there's mental illness and loneliness and addiction um are there times or have there been times in the city in your day-to-day where you're like off duty and you've had to step in in situations like i guess kind of going back earlier how do you separate dr leslie from like quinn going to brunch and like how do you set that boundary yeah it's it's interesting um you know i think there's sort of two legs of that question i mean there's definitely times where because the er is a little bit of or can be a little bit of of a revolving door you know we're required to have any patient who comes in is required to have a medical screening exam they're given the chance to come in and be evaluated. We do see a lot of repeat patients, a lot of whom are, like you said, unhoused or under domiciled or suffer from mental illness or substance abuse. Some of the patients we see three times a day because they come in, they take a nap, they leave, they go lie down on the street, somebody calls uh, EMS because you know they don't know what's going on, they come back in and it's literally a revolving door. And there are times where you know I'm somewhere not near the hospital and I see one of my patients and it's always a fun question. You're like, do I wave? Do I make contact? Do I put my head down? Because I'm like, oh, I don't want you to see me right now because I want to have that separation. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's hard. You know, I, 
I find that, especially right now, I think we're definitely going through a little bit of a drug epidemic in the city. And so we see a lot of um, substance abuse, a lot of people who are out, like, sort of lying on the street. And, you know, there's always a question. People always look to me, they're like, oh, is that person, like, okay? Like, should you go check their pulse? Are they, are they just high? Are they passed out? And learning when to separate is definitely hard. And a lot of times, you know, from far away, I'm like, okay, they're breathing. I'm gonna leave them alone. Um, and it's, sometimes it feels kind of crappy. And some people ask, like, oh, how can you just do that? But I also have to think to myself, like, you know, there's not much I can do here in this situation because yes, sure, I'm a doctor, but I have the knowledge right now, but I don't have any tools. So I don't have Narcan on me. Like, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna call 911 just like a normal person would. And that's, I feel like empowering to other people to know that like, just because I'm with you or a physician is with you or a nurse is with you, doesn't mean that you can't make a huge difference in somebody else's life because the things that we would do for them outside of the hospital are the same things that you would do. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it is, it's hard to separate those two things. And um, it's, it, it is, it's, it's really hard. And I don't, I wish I had a better answer for that, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very difficult. And, you know, I think my heart breaks a little bit for all the people who are, out there and who are suffering and you know I always wish I could do more and sometimes literally it's like you're coming in I know you're making I don't know it sounds terrible making up a complaint to come into the ER where it's a little bit warm so like if all I can do is like let you sleep for an hour and give you a sandwich and then we need the bed like I'll try to do that and sometimes in some days it has to be good enough and hopefully one day we'll be able to do more and have more resources for them um, so it's, it's rough. That's one of the hardest things about my job. And that's one of the things that, you know, I wish our healthcare system and our, you know, social service system were better at, which they weren't so broken, um, but just trying to make the best of a hard situation and forgiving myself on the days that I can't do more and giving myself a pat on the back when that is enough and that person's grateful for it. So I guess just like the last couple of things, you've like shared so much and this has been such an empowering and inspirational conversation and so educational. Thanks. Oh good, I'm, like, I'm really happy to hear that. I'm really excited to just share this um, with the, this community, with the MICT podcast community. Um, I guess like just to kind of wrap like women's health before going into just some like general, or what's your perfect day type of questions. like. Is there anything else that kind of came to mind while we were chatting that you want to speak on? Are there some organizations that you have thoughts about that you support or you think that we yeah. can support as a society? Yeah. So for in terms of breast cancer, I have to give a shout out to um, an organization that I'm a part of and I'm actually one of the new brand ambassadors for. It's called Five Under 40. Um, and basically it is an organization that works with women who are diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of 40 or women who have um, a BRCA mutation, which is one of the genetic mutations that's put you at higher risk for developing um, breast cancer. Um, and they provide medical, wellness, beauty, uh, mental health services. Um, we do like community meetups. And it was an organization I actually found just by Googling, um, probably about six, uh, six, nine, six to nine months into my um, treatment. And um, they have been wonderful. It was the first time that I saw women who looked like me in terms of age. You know, a lot of times when you're a young 
breast cancer patient, and I assume for many other cancers as well, you go to your surgeon's office or to your oncologist's office and most of the patients there are significantly older. You're assuming that you're the daughter or the grandchild of somebody when, you know, they call your name to go into the back. People kind of look at you like, what the heck is, what is going on? Um, And it was nice to have a community of people who kind of got it and dealt with some of the same issues, which, you know, maybe an older community didn't. So things like how do you navigate like your workplace and dealing with your boss and asking for time off and, you know, telling people that you need accommodations because, you know, a lot of these patients might be retirees, you know, what about like fertility and, you know, I want to have kids, I want to have a family, is that possible? So um, it was a really a godsend and they've continued to be amazing. Um, and so I encourage anybody, if you know anybody who's under 40, to check them out. Um, yeah, they are they are wonderful. So awesome. I follow them on Instagram. Yes, I know. The founder, Jen, she was like, one of your friends from Cheer reached out to me, Victoria. Yeah. She's so awesome. It's like so. As soon as we were a part of it, I was like, wow. Because there's just so many amazing organizations that we can, as women, also support and shine a light on, too. And so the work that they do, from what I could even tell, is just awesome. So I'm glad you're a part of that. And yes, brand ambassador. Yeah. We love that. So I guess just to, you know, wrap it up, um, what are some things you're grateful for and what, I'm just going to make it into one question. Okay. And what does your like perfect day look like? Okay. So that can be like with the gratitude stuff sprinkled in. Love it. Um, so I think at this point in my life, I'm really grateful for my relationships, my partner, my friends, my family. Um, and so I think the perfect day would be sleeping in a little bit, you know nine o'clock or so, Um, getting up, maybe going to brunch with some friends. Um, If it's, I would say I would make my perfect day probably like late spring, early summer because I'm a warm weather person. Um, So then maybe walking around the park, just getting in some nature and then like going to a Broadway show in the evening because I also love Broadway and musical theater. Um, Something like that would be amazing. I always just wonder what people say like, what their <laughs> day is like. Because I think that when I ask that question, even outside of the podcast, it's such like a simple answer. I mean, yeah. I, it makes me realize that like what is most important to us are really the little things. It so is true. Getting a coffee with your you know significant other or your friends and like going to a show and appreciating the arts. Like, everyone just has the best answer. Such a beautiful answer, and it again is a great reminder that it is the little things and the loved one our loved ones that really matter and yeah. that's, that are important um oh my gosh do you have anything that you find super magical about new york city in general like other than Ooh. theater the arts broadway like is there what do you find most magical about the city that is a great question i mean i feel like it's not i mean i guess it is magical but i feel like it's not like it's not shiny magical, but I always find New York, it's so interesting. It's like such a great equalizer. And like we were talking about the subway earlier, like I always tell people, I just love that you can get on the subway and there can be somebody in a fur coat with like a five carat diamond and some Jimmy Choo's, you know, sitting next to, you know, someone who's like sleeping and passed out and drunk. Granted, it may be not the best picture, but the idea that like, there's something about the city that brings people together and there's not this distinction between old and young and rich and poor and you know it's it's something that i feel like you don't see very many other places um you know maybe some other large cities that have this kind of vibe but like especially in the u.s i feel like it's very 
it is kind of magical. And it's again, it's not like shiny New York, New York lights and all that things, but it's um, it's very, very different. And I, I always appreciated it. And that's one of the reasons like I love public transportation, despite all of its issues, because um, it's like sometimes it just makes me smile. And I'm just like, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah, and especially because, like, so many people do face loneliness as well. Like, I think that New York really does give anyone a place to belong. Yes, it's. I think it's difficult to find those communities. Yes. But, like, when you put in the work and when you really, like, get to know yourself and figure out what sparks joy and who you want to be around and you find that, it's like, okay, I can belong. I belong in any room I desire to be in in New York City. Exactly. And I think that that's, to that point, is, like, really awesome. And I guess the last thing, like, what are you looking forward to in your personal and professional life over the last, or I mean, sorry, over the next few months? So I'm actually getting married in about three weeks. So that's super exciting. Trying to finish up those last minute details. Yeah. So that's the biggest one, obviously. Um, (laughs) And then we're doing like a little um, mini moon for a couple of days after going to um, Baja, California. So that should be really nice. And then professionally, I think, you know, just getting through the winter. Winters in the ER are, are difficult. There's a lot of patients there who are ill. A lot of the hospital is generally full. So we have a lot of patients who, what we call bored in the ER, like they're admitted, but they don't have a bed upstairs. So they're just kind of hanging out with us. Um, and so I think just getting through that and working with my colleagues and smiling and laughing and hopefully helping some people. I guess just this is not a question I thought to ask before, but in terms of staying healthy this winter, what if, other than like people always say, wash your hands, things like that. <laughs> like, are there other things that come to mind where you're like how we can... Mm. Or is it mostly wash your hands? I mean, yeah, wash your hands, you know, cough into your elbow. You know, if you don't feel well, stay home, which is, I do not take that advice. And I think a lot of people uh, in New York City, we're such an on-the-go, gotta-move, have-to-get-everything-done city that don't take that advice. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think same thing. Advocate for your own health. um, Figure it out what it is that you find important and take those steps and, you know, if you need to see a primary doctor, I feel like that's always a good thing to do. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you so much for being here. Cheers to us. To Cheers. You. Celebrating you. Shining Thank light you. On you. Thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you, Victoria. Yay. Next stop, Penn Station. Welcome to New York.
stop.